2 Samuel chapter 15, we will be in verses 1 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can find a chair Bible in front of you, and you can find this text on page 248, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 12. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and he went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace toward us. God, we see your grace and experience your grace in our lives every single day and in myriad ways. And God, today we're just mindful of the fact that you've gifted each one of us with another day of life. You've given us relative good health to be able to come to church today and to gather together as the people of God. And then, Lord, you have given us the great gift of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, it's just grace upon grace. Lord, we also want to thank you today for your holy word. And Lord, we would ask now as your people that you would use your word to instruct us in righteousness, that you would use your word to increase our faith. Lord, that you would help each and every one of us to grow up into the person that you've created us to be in Christ Jesus. So God, would you bless our time together as a church family, in your holy word, for your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Please be seated. 
Well, David here in first or rather second Samuel chapter 15 is now entering into what could be described as the low point of this man's life. What we just read together is David's son Absalom actually rising up against his own father. I mean, it's, it's treacherous, treacherous and it's sad and David's heart would have become very, very heavy once he understood all that Absalom was doing. What's doubly sad about this narrative, though, is the fact that, as we know as readers who have been studying through the books of Samuel, David has brought these circumstances upon himself. What David is experiencing, this terrible season of life that he's entered into, is the result of his own sinful decisions earlier in his life. So he has brought all of this misery, all of this suffering, all of this hardship on himself. Now, it's certainly not always the case that when things take a turn for the worst in your life, that you're responsible for it. It's certainly not always the case that when you enter into a dark season or a low season, that you yourself are responsible for it. Sometimes things take a turn for the worst and you had nothing to do with it. You get diagnosed with a severe disease. A loved one tragically dies. Your parents get divorced and your family splits apart. These sorts of things happen in life and we've got nothing to do with it. It's just circumstances that we have to deal with. But other times, things do take a turn in your life for the worst. And the truth of the matter is, You've brought the hardship on yourself. It's through your own sinful or poor choices that you now are experiencing this terrible place. This is why as parents and as pastors, especially if you're young here this morning, we constantly plead with you, just do things God's way. Follow God's word. Because there's a lot of pain and a lot of misery and a lot of heartache That could be avoided by doing it God's way, by making godly and righteous decisions. And not only is there pain and misery to avoid, but there's blessing and joy and peace to be had in the will of God. And so as parents and pastors, we plead this way with you. Again, especially you who are young here today, we plead this way with you because we love you and because God loves you and we want to see your life blessed and prospering. And we can point to David's life as a massive warning against disobeying the word of God. Because ever since chapter 11, and David's great sin where he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then attempted to cover up that sin by having her husband murdered, things in both the kingdom and David's personal family have been in complete turmoil. His son Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar, And then after raping Tamar, David's other son, Absalom, avenged his sister by murdering Amnon. This led Absalom to flee the land of Israel and to live as an exile in the land of Geshur for three years. At that point, David's general, Joab, brought Absalom back to the capital city. But for two years, David wouldn't even see his son. So they've been estranged for five years until finally at the end of the last chapter, David and Absalom do meet face to face. But as we learn then, 
Whatever reconciliation took place, it ultimately wasn't meaningful. We know that to be the case because of what we've just read together this morning. Clearly, whatever happened at the end of the last chapter when Absalom comes before King David and bows down and David gives him a kiss on his cheek, whatever was going on there, clearly Absalom did not leave that meeting feeling like things were resolved between him and his father. This passage that we've read this morning describes Absalom's conspiracy against his dad, followed by his attempted coup of his father. Although Absalom is likely the crown prince, meaning that at some point he would have become king when David died, Absalom is not going to wait for that. Absalom is going to take matters into his own hands and he's going to attempt to steal the crown. Now, as wild as all of this is, we need to remember that it is not completely unforeseen. Because after David sinned with Bathsheba and Uriah, In the very next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 12, the Lord sent his prophet Nathan to confront King David, who was unrepentant. And when he confronted King David, Nathan warned David that this was going to happen. Here's what Nathan said to King David back in 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is verses 10 and 11. He says to the king, he says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from where? Out of your own house. So we need to remember that God promised that this was going to happen. And we need to remember that the events that are taking place in David's life are a judgment because of his sin. But we also need to remember another promise that God had made to David. And it was before he ever sinned with Bathsheba. This was back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When God made a covenant with King David. And this promise that God made to David there in 2 Samuel chapter 7 was the promise of an eternal kingdom. That David's house and his kingdom would be established forever. Here here it is in 2 Samuel 7.16. God says to him, in your house... And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so family, while things are very bad for David here in chapter 15, we know that David is not without hope. We know that ultimately God is with David and God has promised that he'll always be be with David. And so, yes, God is bringing judgment and discipline on his disobedient son, but God has not rejected him. And therefore, God will see him through this trial. He is God's king. And anyone, including Absalom, who tries to take down God's king will fail. We'll begin to see how all of these events transpired in this chapter. Let's look now at Absalom's attempt at taking the kingdom away from his dad. It all begins with a conspiracy. Look at verse 1. It says, After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Let's just stop right there. It says, After this. Well, after what? Well, after the events that we studied last week that I just described for you. After David and Absalom had this sort of 
quasi-reconciliation that took place, where they were willing to see each other, but they didn't actually get to the root of their issues. And so they kind of went through the external motions, but they never dealt with the, the division that was between them. And so it was a superficial reconciliation at best. After the events of chapter 14, David is still upset with Absalom for murdering his son Amnon and for usurping David's authority there. Absalom is likely still upset with his father David because after all, David didn't do anything to avenge the rape of Absalom's sister Tamar. And so father and son are upset with each other. There's an issue between them and it has not been resolved. But at the end of chapter 14, David granted Absalom access to his royal court. And with that, we see now he had freedom to move about the city of Jerusalem. And Absalom wastes no time in exploiting this newfound freedom as he gathers an impressive entourage to travel with them. He gathers, according to verse 1, chariots and horses and 50 men who will go before him, that'll run in front of his horses. Now, this is a total power move. What Absalom is doing here is something that kings would do. He's making a statement. He's, he's projecting himself to be a king. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, so many years before this, when God's people cried out against the Lord and demanded that God give them an earthly king, a physical king, just like all the other nations, God told his prophet Samuel, he said, hey, we're going to give them what they want. We're going to give them a physical king. Don't worry about it, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. I'm their king and they're rejecting me. We'll give them what they want, but I want you to warn them about what they're going to actually get. And in that warning, here's what the prophet Samuel said to the people of Israel. This is 1 Samuel 8:11. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. So this is a, 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 a thing that was commonplace in the ancient Near East to gather chariots and horsemen and have these runners in front of you to establish yourself and declare yourself to be a king. We actually see this again with one of David's other sons in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5. David's very old at this point. Absalom is already dead. And there's now a power struggle about who's going to take over when David dies. And his son Adonijah does the exact same thing Absalom does here. This is in 1 Kings 1.5. It says, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. So again, Absalom is, is sort of tying himself into an established practice in the ancient Near East of making a statement. Hey, you're looking at a king here. I'm a king. I'm in control. He's looking like a king. But the question about Absalom is, what kind of king would this man be? And we get a really, really good answer from a clue found right here in verse 1. Ryan Kelly in the Knowing the Bible series on Samuel observes, and I quote, that in Scripture, chariots are often a symbol for human ingenuity and of trust in that human ingenuity. Again, chariots throughout Scripture are often a symbol of human ingenuity and of our trust in that human ingenuity. This becomes abundantly clear 
in the writings of King David himself. David, who wrote Psalm 20, says this famously in verse 7. Check it out. He says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. There are some people who are relying on military technology and strength, human ingenuity and strength. That's what they're relying on. That's what they trust and that's what they're depending on. And he says, but not us, not the people of God. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. And family, that really is the key difference between King David and Saul and every other king who would be like Saul. This carefully placed clue foreshadows for us what is to come with young Absalom. Absalom will rely on human ingenuity. He will lean on his own strength rather than trusting in the Lord. And this reminds us that Absalom stands in continuity, not with David as David's heir, who all of God's promises will flow through. No, no, no. It reminds us that Absalom stands in continuity with King Saul the man who leaned on his own understanding and therefore we know Absalom will ultimately be rejected by the Lord. This distinction is going to run through the whole history of Israel and Judah's kings. As you read through the books of Kings, you'll notice that there are kings who are like David and they trust in the Lord and they receive God's blessing and they actually are furthering God's good plans in the world. And then there are plenty of kings who are like Saul and Absalom and they trust in themselves or they trust in others and they experience God's fury and they work against his good plans for the world. Now, as far as I'm aware, none of us are kings or queens in this world. If you are, then pardon me, your majesty. But this distinction that we're talking about actually applies to every single human being. When you boil it all down, every single person is in one of two camps. Either you are a person who is trusting in human ingenuity, human strength, human wisdom, either your own or that of some other human, and you're looking to that to be your source of purpose and meaning and deliverance and salvation, or you're a person who is trusting in the Lord as your God. Trusting in the Lord as your deliverer and your savior and your only hope. So some people are saying, I've got this. Other people are saying, God's got this. There really are only two camps. And one path leads to frustration and to God's wrath. And the other path leads to blessing and fulfillment. I'd ask you this morning, which camp are you in? When you boil it all down, are you a person who can honestly say, my hope, my trust is in the Lord. I am banking my life on him. If he doesn't save me, there's no hope for me. Or if you're honest with yourself, are you a person who's saying, I've got this. I'll figure this out. I can make it on my own. I don't need God. I can do it myself. All of us are in one camp or the other. Absalom was certainly in the camp of trusting in human ingenuity. What would it have looked like for Absalom to trust in the Lord? Well, I think we get a great answer from David's own example of how he treated his predecessor, King Saul. 
You'll remember that David was anointed king when he was a teenager. He knew that God said, you will be the king in Israel. But the problem was there was an existing king, King Saul. And on two separate occasions, David had an opportunity to kill Saul. In fact, all of the people around David said, David, the Lord has finally delivered Saul into your hands. All that God promised you is being fulfilled right before your eyes. I mean, that would have been really tempting to believe that counsel and go, oh my gosh, you're right. This is exactly what God said. He's going to give me the kingdom and then strike Saul down. But that's not what David did. On both occasions, David feared God enough that he said, I will never raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. I will not strike the Lord's anointed. David's posture was to say, God has called me to be king, but I'm not going to take this thing by force. I trust in the Lord. When he's good and ready to take Saul out of the way and put me on the throne, that's when I will become king. But this is not the way Absalom is. Absalom's the the exact opposite. He takes matters into his own hands and he tries to take the kingdom by force. Well, not only is this man projecting himself as a king, but we see in the text that he also began undermining King David. It begins right there in verse 2. Look down at your Bible. It says, And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Notice with me how energized and determined Absalom is. He's got this newfound freedom where he's, about, he's allowed to travel around Jerusalem. He gets this big entourage to go with him. But the text says that he rises early in the morning. He makes his way to the gate. He gets there before all the other people are beginning to conduct their business for the day, and he puts himself in the position to be able to greet every traveler in and out of Jerusalem. And he's standing there, and he questions them. What, what are you here for? Who are you? Tell me your story. And, and he, he finds the people who have come into the city seeking judgment, or think of it as they're they're coming for a court appearance, so that they can get a matter resolved in their life. And when he hears those people, he's like, hey, tell me your story. What's going on? And Absalom only hears their side of the story. He doesn't bother to actually have a court case and hear the other side. He just hears their side and he goes, oh, yeah, and your claim is right and it's good. You're, You're in the right here. And In that way, he ingratiates himself to these people. He makes them think that he's on their side. And it's actually really sinister because Absalom here, by not hearing both sides of a case and just telling every single person who has a case, you deserve to win, he actually doesn't have to make any difficult decisions like a king would. He gets to just pretend to be on everybody's side and become everybody's buddy. Everybody will like Absalom here. Not only that, But he goes on to disparage King David. It was right there at the end of verse 3. He says, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. So notice he's saying, listen, you you deserve to win. You're in the right here. But my dad, the king, he's dropped the ball here. He hasn't set things up in a proper way to ensure that you could actually have your case heard. Now in chapter 14, the last chapter, A huge chunk of that chapter was devoted to the story of a woman 
from Tekoa, who came to King David seeking judgment in a case in her own family. And she has this conversation with King David, and he actually rules in her favor. So it's not entirely clear then whether Absalom was pointing out a real issue in David's government, namely a lack of organization and administration. David doesn't have people designated to hear all these cases. Or whether he's just making people think that there's an issue and that there's a problem and that there's no chance of getting their case heard so that he can get them frustrated with King David and turn them against him. But if it's the former, if it is that there is a real issue in Israel, that David has not delegated and organized the nation properly so that many people are not getting justice, then it's a great reminder to us that every single leader has some strengths and other weaknesses. Nobody has it all. We know from scripture that David was an exceptional warrior, right? He was the one who killed Goliath as a teenager. We also know that he was an exceptional general. Saul would send him out at the head of the army and David was undefeated. He was like the Alexander the Great of his time. He would just nonstop win. So he's an incredible general. We also know that he's a very, very astute diplomat. There are many stories of him engaging in diplomacy with foreign kings and foreign governments, and it always works out in David's favor. So this is an exceptional leader in many regards. But it could be that in matters of organization and administration, maybe David had some weaknesses. I say all that to say this, that in the body of Christ, in the family of God, in the local church, every single one of us have different gifts. We've all received certain gifts from the Holy Spirit that he gave to us in order that we would build up the church, that the church would function in a healthy way. I have certain gifts, perhaps preaching, for example, But there are other gifts I don't have, like singing. If you don't believe me, you've never sat in front of me in church. Just do it next Sunday. I can't sing. At the resurrection, when I get a glorified body, number one, I'm going to have a full head of hair. Like Absalom, like shaving five pounds off every year. Number two, I'm going to have a beautiful voice. I'm going to be able to sing. Because I want that so bad, I'm probably going to be bald and not able to sing in heaven. But it'll be glory and I won't care. But family, some of us are gifted leaders. Others are teachers. Others are administrators. Others are gifted in hospitality. Others have the gift of mercy. For others still, it's the gift of generosity. For some, it's the gift of discernment. For others, it's the gift of service. And so on and so forth. And the Apostle Paul famously likens the church to a body, a human body. And what Paul says is that the body works best when every single member does its part, right? If if you've got certain organs that are working and other organs that are not working, your body's not functioning at max capacity. And Paul is saying in the church, we are healthiest when every single member is actually doing their part and exercising their gifts because not anyone can do all of it, but together... We can be a healthy body. And so he says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is starting in verse 4. Paul writes this. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. 
And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the common good. And so, how has God gifted you? We have to ask ourselves that. How has God gifted me? How has God wired me? What do I have to bring to the table for the common good, to build up the body of Christ? And when you have an answer to that question, you have to ask the following question. Am I using the gifts that God has given to me? Now, some of us might be asking, how do I know what my gifts are? I'd be happy to use them, but I don't know what they are. Well, number one, I would say, Just serve somehow, okay? There's a spiritual gift of service. So there are some people who are hyper servants and maybe even acts of service toward others are like their love language and they're gifted at this and skilled. But all of us can serve in some way. Even if that's not your spiritual gift, so to speak, we're all called to be servants to one another. So you can just start anywhere. But I would say beyond that, ask other people that you trust in the church, If you're confused, if you don't know what gifts you might have, you could talk to other people and say, how do you see me? Are there things that you feel like I could maybe help out with, things that I can contribute to? And I'd also say this, observe what you think we're lacking in. Like as you look at the church, is there something you look at and you go, man, we need to get that figured out. (laughs) Why is nobody doing that? We could do that a lot better. Notice the things that you sense were lacking in because often the things that you excel at and that you are gifted in are the things that stand out the most to you. If you have an artistic um, flair for design, let's say, you might look at things, um, I don't know if you've noticed, but maybe our interior design could use some improvement around here. That would probably like, you'd look at that and go, man, we could like really make this beautiful in here, you know, or maybe it's graphic design and things and you're going, oh, we could, we could have like more beautifully designed graphics and things that we put up that would stand out to you. If you don't have any of that gift, you probably don't notice as much. You just walk in and it doesn't really bother you. It doesn't matter to you because you're not hardwired that way. It's not something that you're passionate about. And so again, I would say, look around and the things that stir you, the things that you go, man, I'd love to fix that. Or I'd love to plug in here. I'd love to improve this you might be getting onto something there about how God has gifted you and wired you in his image. But all of us have gifts and all of us are called to use them for the common good. Christianity is not pure consumerism. It's not just, what can I get out of this? Christianity definitely gives us a ton, but we are called to have a symbiotic relationship where we are receiving and giving simultaneously. Well, either way, getting back to our text here, Absalom works hard at getting people frustrated with his dad, and then he puts himself forward as the solution to everybody's problems right there in verse 4. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. I wonder if he'd even put his hand on his head. Oh, if only I were judge in the land. He just throws himself out as a solution. Man, it's such a bummer that I'm not in charge, that I'm not the king. Notice now he's directly campaigning for his dad, his dad's job rather, because his dad is the judge in the land. But he's saying, if I were the judge in the land, everybody would be getting justice. 
Nobody would be in your lousy situation getting turned away at Jerusalem and not having justice in their cases. Now, people do this sort of thing all the time. You see it in the workplace. Gosh, our team never gets anything done. If I were the manager in this department, I'd set some good goals for us, and man, we would be, we'd be meeting those goals. You just kind of put yourself out there as the solution to the problems. It happens all the time. But the stakes are really high here. Absalom in, in jockeying for his dad's job is calling for his dad's death. That's very, very serious. But the last thing that he does here is he plays the politician. You see it in verse 5. We won't waste much time here. It says, And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. So the picture would be people are coming up. This is the prince in Israel. They're bowing down before him, paying homage. And he'd be like, oh, come on, get up. He'd grab him by the arm. He'd give him a kiss on the cheek. We're brothers. You know, let's not do all this. You're the, you're the crown prince and I'm your humble servant. We're on the same level here. He's just playing buddy-buddy. Okay, he's shaking hands. He's kissing babies. He's smiling for photo ops at the city gate. And the results are predictable. Verse 6 tells us, Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now that line is crazy when you stop and think about it. In light of all that David had done for Israel. I mean, let's just, let's just replay his story briefly. David was the young man who killed the Philistine giant named Goliath and delivered Israel from their enemies. He became a celebrity and the nation sung songs about him. He was the general who led Israel's army out in victory against all of Israel's enemies, with no exceptions. He married the king's daughter and joined the royal family. He united the kingdom and expanded its borders in every single direction. He brought peace and prosperity to God's people. He established Jerusalem as the capital city and restored the Ark of the Covenant to the center of Jewish national life. And he was a skilled musician who wrote Israel's worship hymnal. David was a man who had the hearts of God's people for decades. They loved him. They sung his praises literally. He had the hearts of God's people. And so we have to ask ourselves, what happened? How in the world could the people of Israel had become, how could they have become disenfranchised and disaffected toward David? The answer again is we have to trace all of this back to David's sin. That was the root cause of this. David failed to honor God and David failed to love his neighbor as he loved himself. In fact, in the episode with Bathsheba, it's on display more than anywhere else, that David was exploiting the people that he was called to protect and serve and lead. And so David's sin puts him at odds with his calling as God's king, and he's no longer honoring the Lord or representing him well. And as we've seen in the last few chapters, David now has become a bit of a shell of his former glory. He now is a weak and indecisive leader. He doesn't step in and judge Amnon when Amnon rapes Tamar. He does not know how to deal with his son Absalom for killing Amnon. He is a man who has been weakened severely in his leadership. And it's a powerful reminder for us that serious sin doesn't always result in losing your position of authority. 
Sometimes it does, but not always. Serious sin does not always result in losing your position of leadership, but it does always result in weakening your power in leadership. Let me say that one more time. Serious sin doesn't always result in losing your position of leadership, but it always results in weakening your power in leadership. It's unavoidable. So husbands, for example, you may sin greatly against your wife or against your children. In doing that, that will not take away your position of leadership in your family as the head of your home, but it will impact and it will weaken your power to lead your home, your credibility, the trust that you have within your home. You could spend decades, friends, decades of your life like David did, building up the love and the trust of the people around you, the very people that God has called you to serve, and yet you can lose it with one bad decision. David, through his sin, had turned the hearts of God's people against him and the consequences of his sin. It had spoiled him in the minds and the hearts of many people. Absalom, for sure. Ahithophel, who we'll talk about in just a minute. And many of the people in the nation. Their hearts had left David and had now been attached to Absalom, and he exploits it. After four years of stealing the hearts of the people, Absalom is ready for his next move. Look at verse 7. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while he lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. These verses and the two verses that follow describe for us now Absalom's coup. First, he had a conspiracy that was developing, but now he's directly uh, trying to overthrow his father. What's so surprising about this situation is that years earlier, Absalom had come to his dad and he had asked his dad if he could have leave to go to his sheep shearers and have a big party with all of the king's other sons. And David sent him away. He gave him leave from Jerusalem, and it resulted in the death of Amnon, David's son, when Absalom murdered him. And now here, this same son, Absalom, once again asks leave of his father to go to Hebron. And unfortunately for David, his allowance will lead to even greater catastrophe. Interestingly, Absalom has been in Jerusalem for six years now. And so it's just totally surprising for us as readers that David isn't suspicious of the story that Absalom is telling him. If it's true that he made this vow six years ago when he was living in the land of Geshur, that, hey, if God brings me back to Jerusalem, I got to go to Hebron and pay a vow to the Lord, you would think that David would ask him, well, why did you wait six years? What is going on here? But again, David is, is, is a shell of, of his former glory as a king at this point in his reign. And he's completely oblivious to the scheming that is going on behind his back. 
And so David naively sends him with a blessing. He says in verse 9, go in peace. Go in shalom. And the sad irony of that is that peace is the last thing that Absalom had on his mind. And with that, he's off to Hebron. Now, this location is very significant. Hebron was David's former capital when he was king over only the tribe of Judah, before he became king over all of Israel. His capital was Hebron. It was likely a pretty fortified city. There might have even been a royal palace there. Not only that, but it's also where Absalom was born. He was born to David in Hebron, and he spent some of his childhood there. That means that Absalom still probably had many strong connections in this city. And not only that, the people of this city, the residents of Hebron, were probably still upset with David that he moved the capital away from Hebron and over to Jerusalem when he became king of all of Israel. What all of this means is this is the the, the perfect place to make your home base to launch a coup against King David. And we know that that was his intention because he sent these secret messengers throughout all the land who would declare him king as soon as they heard the sound of the trumpet. So notice that, that, that Absalom makes his support seem far and wide. He sends these secret messengers and he scatters them all over all the tribes of Israel. And at that same moment, they're all going to declare and shout, Absalom is king in Hebron. And so the whole land is feeling like, oh my gosh, Absalom has supporters everywhere. This is the future. This guy's going to be the king. But not only does he make this support feel far and wide, he also weakened his father's position significantly. Look at verse 11. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. So think about it. Absalom goes to Hebron. He already has his royal entourage of chariots and horsemen and 50 men that run before him. But now he handpicks 200 other key men from the capital. Other diplomats, people in positions of authority, presumably, powerful families. And he brings these other 200 people with him to Hebron. Now, the author makes it clear to us that these men go to Hebron in their innocence. They have no idea what Absalom is scheming. But the genius of what Absalom does is he knows that once these men come to Hebron, he has them totally trapped. Because once David finds out that there is a coup underway in the land of Israel, there's no way David's going to believe that these guys went there naively. He's going to think that these guys have been a part of the coup. They're on team Absalom. So Absalom knows, now I've just won all these guys over. They are enemies of my father. But family, most significant of all, Absalom recruits one of David's closest advisors who defects to his side. It's in verse 12. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite. David's counselor from his city, Gilo. We'll stop there. Now, Ahithophel is a man of substance in Israel. He's a national icon who is renowned for his wisdom. In 2 Samuel 16.23, we read this. Now, in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. I mean, his counsel was esteemed on the level of the word of God. It's as if God himself spoke through this man. 
So this is one of David's most trusted and valuable counselors. And again, he's a national icon and he defects to Absalom. Now the question becomes, why would he do that? Why would this man who served David loyally for all these years, why would he defect to Absalom? Get this, it's crazy. There's actually a really good chance that Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. Check it out. 2 Samuel 11.3, we'll put it on the screen. So this is when David sees Bathsheba bathing and he tells his people he wants them to inquire about her. So it says, and David sent and inquired about the woman. Like, who is she? And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? Okay, so hold the name Eliam in your mind. She's the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, when we jump forward in 2 Samuel to chapter 23, there's this list of all of David's mighty men. And check out how the list explains this in 2 Samuel 23, 34. Eliphalet, the son of Ahazbi of Makkah, and then notice what I put in bold here, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. So Eliam is the father of Bathsheba in chapter 11. And there's a strong case to be made that this same Eliam is the son of Ahithophel. So Ahithophel very well could be the grandfather of Bathsheba. And it could be then that Ahithophel has never, ever forgiven David for what he did to his granddaughter and to her husband. This paragraph ends, of course, on a very ominous note for King David. It says this, And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Storm clouds are brewing now in David's life. And what's crazy is he has no idea yet. He's going to find out in verse 13. And everything's going to fall apart in verse 13. He's going to be on the run. But at this moment, the conspiracy is growing strong throughout the entire land. The storm clouds are brewing in his life and he has no idea. But a thousand years in the future, David's greatest son, Jesus the Christ, would undergo similar circumstances where a great conspiracy would surround the son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. And he would be conspired against by the Philistines and the Herodians and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the Roman government. And he would even be turned against by one of his dearest friends, Judas Iscariot. And we know how Jesus' story works out. We know that ultimately, even though storm clouds brew in Jesus' life and he's betrayed and he's ultimately nailed to a cross, God vindicates him and God delivers him and God raises him from the grave. And so even though we have not yet read David's story and how it's all going to work out, we know that because David has faith in God and trusts in the Lord to be his deliverer, as did Jesus, trusting in his father, we know that for David, things will ultimately work out for his good. And I couldn't help but think this week that it could be that in many of our lives right now, there are storm clouds brewing. There are circumstances that we're about to walk into that are going to be bad. And we are not yet aware of it. We don't know what it is. We don't know what's coming, but the storm clouds are brewing. 
And I just want to encourage you in closing this morning that we don't have to live with incredible anxiety or fear over what may come into our lives and over how all of that is going to work out. Because if we, like David, trust in the Lord, if we, like Jesus, are willing to say to the Lord, not my will, but yours be done, then we can have hope and confidence that ultimately God will work all things together for our good and he'll see us through the challenges and the difficulties that we face, whatever they might be. And so this morning, the most important thing is not trying to get out ahead of the storm clouds that are coming, try to figure out, is anything bad about to happen in my life? The most important thing is to say, in whom do I trust? Am I cut from the same cloth as Absalom and Saul? Am I the type of person who tries to put my trust in my own cleverness or in human ingenuity or human wisdom and human resources? Because if that's you, that's not going to sustain you in the day of trouble. Or are you the type of person like David and like his greatest son, Jesus, who steadfastly and resolutely says, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Because friend, if that's where you're at, then you've got nothing to fear. God is with you and he will sustain you and he will see you through to the end. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful that you are with your people every single day of our lives. God, it's amazing to think that David is sitting in his palace in Jerusalem when verse 12 is happening. A conspiracy is growing strong throughout the land and he has no idea. And Lord, despite that incredible reality and how frightening that is to think about, ultimately David will have nothing to fear. And we will see in the chapters to come, you sustain your anointed king, King David. Not because he handles everything perfectly, not because he's been perfectly righteous, but ultimately because by your grace you have saved him through faith. It's not his works, it's his trust in you, Lord. And therefore he belongs to you. And because he belongs to you, you will see him through. And Lord, I want to pray for all of us here today. God, that you would help us to take heart that you would help us to trust in you, Lord, and know that ultimately there are many things that happen to us in life that we have zero control over. Added to that, there are many negative things that happen to our, to, in our lives as a result of our own sinfulness. And yet, Lord, despite all of that, for those of us who trust in you, we know that you will work all of these things in our lives out to good ends. So Lord, help us to take heart this morning. Help us to trust in you this week. And Lord, if uh, we face serious trials in the days to come, Lord, we pray that even this sermon, this message would be brought by the Holy Spirit to our remembrance to strengthen our faith and our resolve, knowing, Lord, that you will never, ever abandon your people. So Lord, we love you. We worship you. We honor you as our God and as our King today. In Christ's name, amen.